God's word, starting in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Brothers and sisters in Christ, there are plenty of times in the Bible where people assume that they know what the outcome of things are. Uh, is going to be. They know. Uh, they, they assume that they know how things are going to go. Uh, there's plenty of times in the Bible <clears throat> where people presume uh, to have a wisdom from experience uh, that something is going to end up the way that they think that it's going to end up. You think of um, uh, just random stories like, uh, say, Balaam's donkey, um, Numbers chapter 22 through 24, uh, where you think that uh, or that, that King Balak uh, thinks that uh, that this prophet. Uh, Balaam is going to uh, go and see the people of God and he's going to curse the people of God about, and, and what he ends up doing, uh, much to Balak's chagrin, is that he ends up blessing the people of God seven times instead of cursing them. I think of the, that, that famous story of uh, David with uh, the uh, woman Bathsheba. Pastor Ben had uh, mentioned uh, her this, this morning. You think that his sin, or at least David thinks that his sin is going to go unnoticed, totally covered up, until 2 Samuel 12, uh, the words from the prophet Nathan that uh, I suppose every man wants to hear, except in that uh, that particular context, the prophet Nathan uh, looks at him and says, you are the man, you don't expect that things are going to go that way, nor do you expect that for that matter that Bathsheba is going to have anything to do with the genealogy of Jesus, as we uh, saw just uh, just this morning. It doesn't end up the way that you think that it's going to. Or think of uh, just about every single story in the book of Daniel. Uh, picking one at random, uh, Daniel in the lion's den. Right? Everybody knows that uh, that famous story. You think you know how it's going to end. You know, Daniel has this uh, uh, this law of the Medes and Persians that shall not be revoked coming against him. You cannot pray to any god except for this uh, this one god for, the, for this one king for this amount of days. And if you do, you're going to be thrown into the, the pit of lions. And this is exactly what happens to Daniel. You think you know what's going to happen? Uh, that he's uh, going to be crushed and eaten, but they don't eat him. Instead, what happens is that they eat the people who threw them, threw him in there in the first place. I think uh, fast forward now to the plot of the Jews uh, and the order of uh, Pontius Pilate to crucify Jesus. Uh, you can also pair that with the devil himself when he tempts uh, Eve. Uh, he deceives Eve and he tempts uh, Adam in the garden. Never in their wildest dreams do any of these players think that the crucifixion of Jesus 
would result in his coming to life again three days later. Never in their wildest dreams, uh, even the devil himself, could, could ever imagine uh, an instance, a universe, in which death itself can be undone. There's plenty of people in the Bible and in life in general who presume to know what things are going to happen, uh, where things are going, but then things don't turn out that way. Well, here in the Gospel of John chapter 6, Jesus is speaking to people who presume to know something about Jesus and that they presume that he's going to do something because of what they know about him. They presume him uh, to be some sort of a miracle worker uh, who is going to supply them with a ton of bread, maybe like the uh, bread that he did on the day before. And they think that, he got his, that they got his number, uh, that he's going to definitely do this if they just go ahead and ask for more bread, you know, per- perhaps for the entertainment value of uh, seeing him do another miracle or that uh, they could get some sort of financial gain from this or something like that. Uh, they think that they can just simply ask him um, uh, to, to produce more of this miraculous bread and things don't happen the way that they anticipate. What happens is, is that he points to himself and he says, yeah, that bread that you got the day before, okay, think of that, I am the bread of life. Uh, they don't anticipate something uh, like this. And when people encounter something that they don't expect, there's a number of reactions that people have when they encounter something that they don't expect. Uh, In this passage that we just read tells us of one of the myriad of ways that a human being could react uh, to when something else happens than what they uh, anticipate. And so what we're going to be doing, uh, instead of, uh, like I said, uh, going through uh, verses 41 through 59, where we actually get two different ways of uh, what happens when people encounter something that they don't uh, expect, uh, what we're just going to do this, uh, this evening is just look through uh, the very first way, verses 41 through 51, of the way that the crowd reacts when something happens that is said that they simply don't uh, anticipate. And so we've already read this, uh, this passage, uh, but we're going to be continuing on in our series in, in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, uh, with part 3 of Jesus as the bread of life, and continuing with this theme that's written in your bulletin, that Jesus sustains us and how we need to be sustained, not merely how we want to be sustained. That's the theme for this entire chapter from, oh, say, verse 22 onwards, uh, almost to the rest of the, the, the chapter. But instead of there being just two points, I had, as I had mentioned, there's going to be four points. Uh, so you're going to have to do some crossing off in your bulletin. But don't worry, because these four points only have one word per point. So it's very easy for us uh, like that. It made things rather easy. Uh, just like, you know, hymn 208 and then hymn 207. You don't have to even turn your page. Well, I love you enough. These points are only going to be one word per, uh, per point. So the first point, grumbled. Grumbled. The second point, drawn, drawn. The third point, taught, taught. And the fourth point, descended. So when we look at the first point, uh, we come to verse 41. Take a look with me in, in the word of God. In response to what Jesus said in verses 35 through 40, which, by the way, as I'd mentioned the previous time, uh, is the crux of understanding everything that, uh, that proceeds from, uh, from that. You're not going to understand verses 41 through 49, 59 unless you understand verses 35 through 40. 
But in response to what Jesus says in those verses, uh, the passage just very simply says, so the Jews grumbled. Uh, Now, notice firstly the word change here. Earlier, as I'd mentioned, it was the crowd that came to Jesus, and now it says that the Jews were there, and the Jews were the one who grumbles. John normally uses, in the Gospel of John, he normally uses this word, the Jews, to refer to religious Jews who are most likely there because verse 59 says that Jesus said these things while he was teaching in a synagogue at Capernaum. And this is an important item here because it forces us to think about their grumbling in a different light, in a more broader light. We've been finding out for the last five chapters, six chapters, that there is a very close relationship that the Gospel of John has with the entire Exodus event, especially when Jesus is performing his signs. That's why John always says the word signs and not miracles. He says signs and wonders to make us think way back to the Exodus event, and what sign does Jesus perform right in this very context? He, he performs the sign of multiplying the bread miraculously to feed 5,000 people. And what does this correspond to? Well, most purely it corresponds to the manna that fell from heaven. And what do the people of Israel do back then when they receive the manna, the bread from heaven? They grumble after they receive it. And so just as the people of Israel grumbled at the receiving of the bread from heaven, so too these people will grumble at the words of Jesus, who is the bread of life, who has come down from heaven. So the people here relate to the people back then uh, because of their grumbling. They're both very good at grumbling, which is why Jesus will refer to these people in verse 49 as your fathers. He will refer to to your fathers, not our fathers, but your fathers, because the grumbling of the people here mimics the grumbling of the people in the Old Testament. Now, what do they grumble about? What what are the things that they uh, grumble about? Well, firstly, the text uh, tells us, uh, verse 41, they grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And secondly, uh, verse 42, they grumbled because Uh, They ask themselves, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say that I have come down from heaven? You can see the relationship of these two being uh, the fact that they really don't like this idea that Jesus uh, is uh, claiming to be the man from heaven. Uh, But we can look back at these words and deduce somewhat of their thoughts. We can kind of peer a little bit into their, their thinking and we can understand the, the, the way that they thought of things through these words. They, they understood, number one, that Jesus is here, using, is here using the bread as an image or a symbol. At number two, we can deduce the fact that they understood that Jesus is using the bread as an image or a symbol that has reference to himself. And, and number three that he attributed the origins of that bread, that manna from heaven, with that of his own origins. They both have the same origins. In other words, what they're doing is they're doing an exercise of logic. They're doing, in, in, in some way of thinking, a layman's form of systematic theology. They apprehend what Jesus said, but it just simply doesn't sit right with them. 
They could imagine Jesus as the, the guy who, who, who gives the bread to them, but for him to be the bread himself and to apprehend the idea that Jesus has heavenly origins is what I usually refer to as too tall of an order for them. So what do they do? They bring up things like, like his family life, his personal life, in order to kind of disarm him. Uh, to declaw him, to, uh, uh, to discredit his, his words. Uh, they think that an appeal to his personal life is going to overcome his words, what he says. Uh, this is very similar, by the way, uh, brothers and sisters, to what will happen uh, when you speak to people about the things of the gospel or the things of God more generally. Uh, this has almost direct application to the Christian life. Uh, what happens here? Uh, the people sort of understand what, uh, what Jesus says, but what they want to do is they want to sidebar what Jesus says because they really want to go after some sort of uh, other thing that they take issue with. It's exactly what's going to happen and what commonly happens whenever you speak to someone about the gospel. About 99% of the time, whenever you, th- you, you speak to someone about uh, the things of God in general, they'll apprehend the good news of Christ. But then they'll give something from way out in left field uh, to kind of detract you or to declaw you or to defang exactly what, uh, what you said. Yeah, I know that you said that you know, Jesus is the only way. That's your interpretation, though. That's just your interpretation. And the temptation then is just to follow that, uh, that, that side trail, that rabbit trail, and to try to show them how, no, your interpretation is, is good and everything like, uh, like that. Or, or something, that they'll say uh, something else. Uh, yeah, well, you have faith and I have science. Okay, that's you know, what's called a red herring. You speak to, think, to, to, to them the things of the gospel. Yeah, you got faith and I got science. Okay, that's a common uh, uh, misconception. Or how about this one? I've uh, experienced this one a number of times. You know, you don't really need Jesus as you say that uh, that I do. I don't really need Jesus. As long as I'm a good person, right? And as long as, uh, this is one I commonly get, as long as my good works outweigh my bad works, we're good to go. You know, me and God, uh, I remember uh, evangelizing to someone in Pittsburgh, a guy named Kevin, I don't know why I remember his name, but literally he, he looks at me and he says, let me tell you something. You know, he wrings his hands like, uh, like this. Me and God, we got an understanding, <laughs> you know, like, uh, like that. What he's doing is he's trying to defang, he's trying to declaw exactly what I said to him about the things of God earlier by bringing up a sidebar issue. That's exactly what uh, is going on here. That's exactly what happens in, uh, in, in life. People will have all sorts of complaints about the things of God, and it's easy to get sidetracked. But what we need to do is we need to be like Jesus here. We need to follow the example of Jesus. What does he do when they start grumbling? Well, virtually the same thing that God does in the Old Testament. Uh, What does he do? He gives them more bread. That's what he does. He keeps giving them more bread. So he gives them more of what they need of himself, not merely what they want. And this is going to be looked at a little bit more when we come to the next point on people being drawn. People being drawn. So drawn. Leading up to this, we can see, firstly, that He demands repentance from them for the sin of their grumbling. Uh, He demands repentance from them. He simply says, verse 43, 
do not grumble among yourselves. Which firstly is an amazing thing that he can kind of peer into uh, the thoughts and the, the, the intentions, the motives uh, of their hearts and know that amongst themselves they know that they're grumbling amongst themselves. Uh, yet it's a simple command. It's a very simple command, one that will certainly save a lot of confusion, uh, one that will save a lot of heartache, uh, both at that time and later on in their, their lives. Uh, but as simple of a command as it is, we know that it's a command whose real significance reaches all the way back into the Old Testament, which means that what Jesus is doing in commanding them to repent in a very simple way, we can say that this is somewhat of a warning of Jesus, a warning uh, of, of his mercy. What he's doing is he's telling them, Listen, people, do not grumble. That is to say, do not fall into the chastening hand of God for grumbling as your fathers did in the Old Testament. Look how that turned out. Look how that turned out. They were there for 40 years because of their their grumbling. Don't turn out like your fathers. But notice that he doesn't even bother answering their complaint because he knows that it's a complete waste of time. Uh, what he does instead is he, he continues to, 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 to be on the track that, that he was to make them hear what they need to hear. Uh, what he does is he doesn't lose focus. He, he just simply redirects the conversation back to its main task. He is there to be to them the bread of life. That's what he has said about himself, so he's going to get right back on track to do so, to explicate himself as so. So firstly, he demands their repentance, and from there he reiterates to them the doctrine of election, just as he did in verse 37. Uh, Verse 44, he reminds them that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The original language is a lot more sharp, uh, a lot more crisp, Uh, Those few words uh, that the verse starts with is a combination of three Greek words. Literally, it says, not one thing is able to come to me unless the Father draws him. Uh, That word draw uh, is only used a handful of times in the New Testament. It always refers, outside of this passage, always refers to an inanimate object Uh, or an incapacitated person or thing being dragged or being pulled by something else or someone stronger. Think of uh, John chapter 21. In about 15 years, we'll get there and we'll see that there's 153 fish that are in a net that are being hauled in. That same word is used there. Uh, We read in Sunday school just this, uh, this morning, Acts chapter 16, where Paul is being dragged into the marketplace uh, for his arrest. Uh, over in Acts chapter 21, the same concept. James chapter 2, you remember that passage. Hey, isn't the rich the ones who oppress you? And isn't the rich the ones who drag you into court? Same word that's, uh, that's used here. Same word that's used here. So what's going on here is that Jesus appeals to their blindness. He appeals to their inability. He appeals to the, the, the power of God's mercy to save sinners and to draw them to himself. They're told this because they misunderstand their actual position before him. Uh, In other words, it may be the case that they were around him in proximity, but never did they actually come to him. Really. Coming to him redemptively and truly uh, entails belief in him. 
in verse, uh, verse 29 of the same chapter, says it's the work of God that you believe. So the crowd wouldn't be complaining about his words if they really came to him this way. So in other words, if you love Jesus, you've come to him in faith, exactly as you're supposed to. It's not an external coming to him merely, it's an internal coming to him primarily. And if you've really come to Jesus, it's because the Father has enabled you. And the Father has, has, has drawn you to Christ. So he reiterates the doctrine of election to them. Uh, isn't it an ironic thing that the doctrine of election still to this very day makes people grumble? Uh, it's a rather ironic thing. There's hardly a doctrine out there that American Christianity resists more than the sovereignty of God and the dispensing of his grace. Uh, there's a, a lot of teachings out there that are far more tolerable uh, to American Christianity, but this one is uniquely insufferable to the pride of man. Uh, remember that the doctrine of election should otherwise be known as the doctrine of the Christian's comfort. Uh, especially as it's given here, it's not meant for you to wonder about free will and you know whether I'm not whether I'm the elect or not. It's meant for you to be astonished at the power of God's mercy. It's meant for you to look at this and 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 be blown away that 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 the Father draws me to Christ. Same word that's used in John 18, even as Peter draws his sword out of the sheath in order to cut off Malchus's ear. Same word that's used here. It's supposed to make us astonished that his grip is upon me. And I'm being drawn to Christ in every single aspect of my life. And there ain't nothing more powerful than the mighty hand of God upon my life. There is nothing more powerful than the mighty hand of my heavenly Father. It's meant to make a distinction between the people who are there in front of Jesus in this passage and you, brothers and sisters, who have taken the bread of life and in so doing, you've been given a new heart because you've been drawn by the Father to the Son. In our next point, we'll see how Jesus develops this even further Our next point is just simply being entitled taught. So we've got grumbled, we've got drawn, and now we're on to taught. Verse 45 says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Uh, Firstly, notice that Jesus utilizes the word of God to substantiate what it is that he says. And in doing this, he expands a little bit more upon what he previously said. In verse 44, he says that the Father draws us to the Son. Well, in verse 45, he gives the means by which the Father draws people to the Son through the ministry of the Word. Through the ministry of the Word. The ministry of the Word is the unique function of the church uh, that is unparalleled and that is unrepeatable by the world. Uh, No other organization, uh, no other institute in the world can do this. And no other organization in the world will do this. Uh, Christ has, has, has built his church so that the word would uh, go forth and that the spirit who utilizes the word will convict and convince so that people will be drawn to eternal life. And Jesus here uses the word. He quotes from Isaiah 54 
uh, verse 13, he says, they will all be taught by God, which if you read it in its context, I invite you to do so uh, later on tonight. If you read it, read it in its context, Isaiah 54, verse 13, it's a, it's, it's a promise. God makes a promise about the restoration of Jerusalem. And here he applies this passage to the ministry and the formation of his church. In other words, uh, we can see that when people are drawn by the Father to the Son, it fulfills the promises that God has put down in the Old Testament. Uh, this promise is fulfilled, in other words, when uh, people from every tribe, every tongue, every uh, language, every nation are drawn to Jesus. So he uses the word to substantiate what it is that he says. And then he goes on to say that everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, which again explicates even farther, this is the means by which the Father draws people to the Son. This is by the, the means by which the Father draws. It gives us a, he gives us a small little Bible lesson uh, he gives us a, a small uh, exposition of that passage in Isaiah 54 that he quoted so that the people would know what it is to be taught most properly. In other words, it's not merely enough just to hear the word. Uh, it's not just enough to even know what it says you know, as the Jews apprehend what Jesus is saying, they know what he's saying. Yeah, Jesus just said that he's come from heaven. You know, they can exposit that. They, they, they know that. They're good enough systematicians uh, to, to put all these verses together because Jesus didn't actually say those words. They're, they're, they're good enough listeners in order to put together exactly what Jesus says to synthesize it. But it's not, it's not good enough just to hear the word or to know what it says, but to learn it as well. Uh, literally, this word "learn" uh, in the Greek is where uh, is, uh, is a very similar word that uh, is often translated to be a disciple. It's not enough just to hear it or just to know what it says, but to learn it as well, to sit under its guidance. This is why the divine truth is revealed, not just so that it can become uh, axiomatic, uh, not just uh, because uh, it, it can turn into a commonplace thing. Uh, or just to be there just because it's supposed to be. The, the divine truth is not revealed just merely for the entertainment value of it. It's there so that people would be taught and that they would learn from the Father. And that's the method by which the Father draws people to himself through them being taught and seated under the word. And then in verse 46, we get a statement about the reaction from the Jews that Jesus anticipates. Uh, he says, uh, Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. You might ask, what, uh, what's this doing here? It seems to be out of place. Well, uh, Jesus actually uh, uses this because I believe he's anticipating that they're either thinking something or that they'll say something later. I believe that Jesus is anticipating that they're thinking to, to, to themselves something like, yeah, uh, but how do you know? Uh, what gives you the credentials to say that you are the man from heaven? How do you know that you're right about all this stuff, that you're from heaven and that God draws people to himself? All, all, all this, uh, this stuff. Again, calling his credentials into question. How do you know? I bet you that's, uh, that's what uh, is going on here. The answer is simple. 
uh, he anticipates what it is that they're thinking. He's saying that there is someone who has seen the Father. He knows him personally to vouch for the truth of these things. It's another way of saying to them that, yes, he does have heavenly origins, and therefore he has heavenly prerogative. Uh, He knows what he's talking about uh, in terms of who comes to the Son and him being from heaven, everything like that, because he is from heaven himself. In other words, Jesus looks at them and says, yeah, you think you know my father. You bring up that, uh, that thing to try to disarm what I say. You think you know my father. You really don't. And by the way, if you compare this to John 8 verse 44, it gives you another sense of the development of what Jesus is actually saying here. Y'all think that you know who my father is. You really don't know who my father is. You don't know my father. The one who has seen the father is from heaven. And I am the one from heaven. And to learn from the Father is to be drawn to the Son in faith. And this is why Jesus ends that, uh, that section in saying, Truly, truly, verse 47, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Uh, it's those who are taught, that is, those who hear and learn from the Father who are drawn to Christ, And we know that Jesus knows what he's talking about because Jesus is the man from heaven come to tell this to us. Well, this leads to our final point tonight. We've gone through three points already, grumbled, drawn, and taught. Now we'll consider our last point, descended. Uh, Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down, descended from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. Uh, In Exodus chapter 16, when the people of Israel were in the desert, uh, they had no way to get their food. And so what God does is he rains down uh, for them bread from heaven. And they ate it for 40 years until they got into the land of Canaan. Jesus is here drawing an analogy between the manna in the wilderness uh, and himself to establish the pattern here with his own coming. He repeats what he says in verse 35 above to tell them that both breads have descended. And while they both have the same origins, they both function in a different way and that by design. They don't do the same things And that by design, the manna in the wilderness uh, that descended from heaven allowed someone to continue to live, but it didn't secure their lives beyond death. The manner of eating that bread was through the mouth, and it was only temporary. Temporary in the sense that it only came for 40 years. Temporary in the sense that it grows moldy and it spoils. Temporary in the sense that you can only gather it from Saturday Uh, I'm sorry, from Sunday to Friday, and you have to take a day off from gathering it. And in order to get that bread, you had to gather it up yourself. Uh, But the bread of life that's found in Christ uh, is a covenant bond in him that you are gathered to yourself. 
Remember, the Father draws you to the Son. Uh, The bread of life that's found in Christ is a bread from heaven that's no longer temporary. As we know in John chapter 1, we can uh, cross-pollinate the uh, imagery here, that it's a bread that has been with God and was God and was God from the beginning. It's a bread, it's a heavenly bread in Christ that is itself eternal. It secures for us an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, that's kept in heaven for you. It's a heavenly bread that doesn't continue a temporary life. Uh, It gives life, and it gives life that will last into the ages. It's a heavenly bread whose manner of eating is no longer by the physical mouth, it's by the mouth of faith. Uh, Augustine says this famous quote, If you've believed, you have eaten. On this very passage, how do you know that the manner of eating is faith? Well, cross-reference verse 47, which is a parallel passage to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus is here using the imagery of the bread from heaven to tell the Jews of his origins so that they would stop their grumbling. And verse 51 is the summary of all this. It says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He is descended from heaven, and he's only uh, appropriated by faith. Uh, That's how this bread is to be eaten, if you will. And some of the commentaries uh, assume that Jesus gives physical reference to himself. If anyone eats of this bread, in other words, by the, by the gesturing of the hands, which I think is a solid understanding of this, uh, this passage, especially if you know the Gospel of John, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the last line Jesus gives starts another conversation that we're going to take up the next time. It says, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We've seen tonight that Jesus sustains us in how we need to be sustained, not merely how we want to be sustained. We've seen our passage as it speaks to these four points, that uh, these four points grumbled, taught, drawn, taught, and descended. And I'll close with a couple of points of application this evening. Brothers and sisters, Uh, Firstly, uh, be confident in the one who draws you to the Son. Be confident in the one who draws you to Christ. Uh, Be confident in the one who draws you to Christ. Verse 44 says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Uh, One of the reasons why we here, not only in this church but in the OPC in general, Uh, We want you to have a robust understanding of the Bible and theology. One of the reasons why we want that for you is so that you will know God well enough to distinguish uh, between him and all of his actions, his word, his works, all of his providence. Distinguish that from your experience. We want you to know the distinction that, that there is there. And when you know that God is omnipotent, when you know that he's omniscient, When you know that God is holy, he's sovereign, it fills us with incredible confidence that all of his power, all of his perfections are employed in drawing you to the Son of God, all of them. All of his power, all of his perfections 
given over to drawing you to Christ. Uh, The last week may have been for you a continual battle in sin. You may be thinking to yourself that you got nothing left in you to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, you may be thinking to yourself, why am I even here? Why am I even uh, playing the game as though I'm a Christian? I'm so bound by sin. And this last week is testament that I am just a miserable sinner. That's okay. That's okay. Because it's the Father who draws you to the Son. It's the Father who draws you to the Son. The focus is not on your ability to keep yourself on the track of being drawn or something like that. It is the Father himself who draws you to the Son of God. People may steal your possessions. Uh, They may take your stuff, but there's nothing that's ever going to lay claim on you, ultimately, when the Father draws you to Christ. Again, you're gripped by an omnipotent hand. And he is drawing you to Christ. Do you love Jesus enough to hate your sin? And do you hate your sin because you love Jesus? If so, then you're being drawn to Christ. Do you love what God loves and do you hate what God hates? If so, you're being drawn to Christ even now. So be confident in the one who draws you to Christ. Secondly, Bring your grumbling to the cross and leave it there. Bring your grumbling to the cross and leave it there. The biggest problem uh, that kicks off this entire passage wasn't the grumbling and complaining of the Jews. The biggest problem here is that they were grumbling and complaining because they thought that Jesus was wrong and that they were right. That's perhaps greater than their grumbling and complaining. For them... They don't have anyone outside of themselves to bring their complaints to. Brothers and sisters, you do. You do. You have in Christ a high priest who sympathizes with you. You have in Christ one who bears your burdens. Why? Because he cares for you. This is what the Bible says. He cares for you. You have in Christ one to whom you can look and know confidently that he has indeed seen the Father And that nothing happens to you that he doesn't notice. There might might be things that you're going through right now. There might be emotions that you have about an issue that you just simply can't control. Or maybe it's just the the, the case that you just, just barely speaking, you just don't know why your life is like this. Whatever it is, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Yes, we have grumblings. Yes, we have complainings. Uh, Bullets don't detour the life of a Christian, I've once heard from someone years back. We have things to grumble and complain about. What we need to do is we need to bring our grumbling, we need to bring our complaining to the cross and the empty tomb and leave it there. Thirdly, Continue to hear and learn from the Father. Continue to hear and learn from the Father. Verse 45 says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And in these words, we get the idea that God has something to say. He has something to say. And since all the earth is his, the heavens declare his glory, everything that happens happens at his very decree, and everyone owes to God their worship, their, uh, their obedience, their service. And he has something to say. He has something to say 
about every aspect of our lives. And so we need to be continually uh, hearing from him. We need to be continually learning from him. This is the means by which he draws you to the Son of God. This is the means by which he draws you to Christ. So listen to him. Uh, Hear him out diligently and regularly. Be with him in times of deep prayer and contemplation. Uh, Commune with him. Commune in fellowship uh, with him and his people. Read the word. Meditate upon it intensely. And it will result in you being drawn to Christ. Again, verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So continue to hear and learn from the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.